Good morning. I was telling the men's group uh, last week that um, there is a uh, one particular preacher in the place in where we are in Luke 18 today. It's taken him 11 years to get there. It's been a year and a half for me, so clearly I need to slow it down. <laughs> 11 years. How about that? Very thorough, as you might imagine. What I do in one sermon, he takes six and sometimes eight sermons. Ah. Well, today's parable on prayer, it's not that Jesus just said, okay, everyone, let's just cut off everything I've said and and let's talk about prayer. This fits in the context. You may or may not know that the chapter breaks in, in the Bible, our modern Bibles, were not there. That's not part of the original Bible. These chapter breaks and the verse the verses, verse numbers that are put in there were not done until the, the uh, let's see, the 16th century. Actually, it was the, the, see, the 1500s would be the 16th century. Uh, 16th century, that's when they were in there. So prior to that, you didn't go to Luke 18, verse 1. You know, you didn't know. You, you flipped and you found the place where you were supposed to be reading. Um, uh, so when we see this, sometimes it can throw us off and take us out of the context. The context here is about the kingdom of God. You know that last week, you may have picked up on this, when I started, I was so, I was a little too busy last week, and I started my sermon last week in verse 22, and I was supposed to start at verse 20. How many of you noticed that? You did, of course you did, I know, whoever said I did over there, I know, Steve, of course you did. That's why I wasn't looking at you when I said it, I just, and when I came back to it, I went, holy mackerel, I did not preach two passages that get the context started. So it happens. I won't say it happens to the best of us because I'm not among the best, but it happens. But the point here in the the context of Matthew, of Luke 17, is the question of God's kingdom. When is it coming? It's what the Pharisees put to him in Luke 17, 20. Uh, When the kingdom of God was coming. Jesus answered them, said the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Which is interesting because as we look at the second coming of Christ, which is God's kingdom coming, there's all kinds of signs that precede that coming. I mean, signs that are unmistakable. The first sign of the second coming of Christ will be a peace treaty signed in Israel. I know what you're thinking. Maybe in the news that's coming. Maybe, maybe it didn't. Don't be a a newspaper eschatologist. Where you read the newspaper and say, oh, this is unfolding. Um, That will be the first indicator. If there is a true peace treaty in Israel, seven years later, the second coming of Christ will be. And you can read the book of Revelation, beginning at chapter 6, and you can just see the events unfold chapter after chapter, but if you see them unfold, you miss the rapture. So that's not a good place to be if you're watching these unfold. So the point now is to how do I I not miss the rapture? Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Him and you shall be saved. Saved from the coming wrath. And so when He says there are no signs that, that, that precede it, Jesus is talking about a form of the kingdom that exists right now. Because Jesus speaks throughout the New Testament of the kingdom of heaven being right now. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are synonymous. The kingdom of heaven is now. Jesus speaks of it as present. In fact, when he opened the the Bible to Isaiah chapter 61, when he came into town of Nazareth, when he began his ministry, he said, uh, this scripture is fulfilled. And it was talking about the coming king. The king is the kingdom. And Jesus could say things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is is the kingdom of heaven. He can say things like here in verse 21 of 17, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, among you. If you have a NIV, it will say within you, which is a bad translation. Not that the NIV is a bad translation, but that particular passage is mistranslated because it makes it feel like to people, oh, I've got the kingdom of God living in me. It's in me, it's in you, it's in everyone. It's not. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, guys, you want to know when it's coming? I'm right in front of you. I'm its king. I'm here. So the kingdom of God is now, but it's not yet. The fullness of God's kingdom has not come. The fullness of God's kingdom comes when Jesus returns. This is what we might call the invisible kingdom of God. So in this particular time in which we live, where God's kingdom has appeared, the king has come, he has introduced himself to us. He has ascended into heaven after his death and his resurrection. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he awaits his return. What about us? What do we do now? That's really the, where the context is. What should we do, be doing as we await the fullness of Christ's kingdom at his second coming? Answer, it's about prayer. 
It's about prayer. Hence, this is where Jesus tells this parable. Note, back in 17, where Jesus says in verse 22, he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. We do, we long to see a day of the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. If you are in Christ, you long for the days which Jesus will return, don't you? We see the injustices and the problems in the world today, and we say the same thing. Lord, thy kingdom come. Send your kingdom. We know it's here. We know it's not here in its fullness. Come in all of your fullness. That's what we want. That's what I want. That is what we are to be praying for, my friends. And that's what this parable is about. We long to see the coming of the days of of the Son of Man. Why? Because we know that when Jesus arrives back on the earth, well, put it in fairy tale form, we all live happily ever after. And who doesn't like that? When Jesus returns, he will put his enemies to death. His enemies, before they die, they will bow their knees because the Bible says, Old Testament, New Testament, that every knee will bow. Every eye will see him on that day. All those past who don't believe in God, there is no God, we hate God, all the Frederick Nietzsche's of the world, they will bow their knee to the King of Kings and they will affirm what they so desperately denied all their lives that there is no God and every tongue will confess. They will taste what it feels like to say Jesus is King. And we long for that day, don't we? We look forward to it. We hope it comes today. We won't long for it. Not only will there be justice, there will be that happily ever after. There will be us with Him. I mean, that's what I'm longing for. That's that's what life is. It's about looking forward to future life with Christ. So Jesus tells them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart because we're in the midst of a, or I should say we're in really no man's land of the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. We don't know when he's coming because you and I, although there are signs of the second coming of Christ, there's also what the apostle Paul adds, and that's the rapture. Now, the rapture is not the second coming of Christ. In fact, Paul speaks of the rapture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, and he calls it a mystery. If it's a mystery, that means Jesus never talked about it. Paul would be like me saying, okay, I'm going to give to you a mystery. A mystery is Joe Biden is going to be, uh, what is he, the 43rd, 44th president, 46? Okay, I've got it. It's coming to me. Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. If, 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 in fact, he's not already the president. That would be Paul saying, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep. That, that would be the silliness of Paul saying, I give you a mystery. Jesus spoke of his second coming. He did not tell us about the rapture. The apostle Paul did, giving us God's words, Jesus' words. So that second coming of Christ, although the first coming of Christ had no signs that preceded it, and it didn't. All of a sudden, the kingdom of heaven was there. Jesus, it's, our king, is there. At the second coming, there'll be signs leading up to it. But there are no signs leading up to the rapture, other than that things continue to get bad and worse and bad and worse. And we know it's coming. It could happen at any moment. So what do we do? Jesus is going to tell a parable and show us that we ought to pray and not lose heart. You see, you lose prayer. Well, I should say we lose heart when we pray when we don't get what we want don't you? Now, folks, listen to me when I say this. This passage, this parable, is not meant, the persistence of prayer, is not meant in any way, shape, form for us to badger God over and over with our requests in order to get what we want. It's not. If you are praying for someone to be saved, this is not the passage that you go to. If you think praying for them every day, multiple times every day, is somehow going to get them saved, this is not the passage you go to. In fact, I would tell you if you're praying for someone to be saved every day, don't waste your time. Pray once, leave it with God, and move on. One prayer, the prayer of a righteous man or woman, is a powerful, effective thing. James chapter 5, verse 16, that's what it says. In fact, it shows great faith to hear say, Lord, here's my request. I'm putting it at your feet, I'm leaving it with you, I'm moving on. It's not about praying for someone who has recently been diagnosed with cancer 
and that we pray over and over and over that they will be relieved of it. That is not what this prayer is about or this persistence in this parable is about. So follow me with it. He says, in a certain city, so it's a parable, it doesn't have to have a, a specific city, there's a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Okay, so uh, a judge who, who doesn't fear God is a bad judge. In fact, I, I was setting aside a, my ribbon here and um, looking at what King Jehoshaphat says uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 19. He says, uh, um, in appointing judges, Jehoshaphat says this, He said to the judges, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful in what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or taking a bribe. That's just one passage among many uh, that I don't normally get to quote King Jehoshaphat. So I thought I'd quote him on that. But he's telling judges, look, God is watching. You're judging for the Lord. So if you're an unjust judge, you're a godless judge. You're a judge that if you don't have um, your foundation of what God thinks, you're making things up as you go. Everything is how you want. It's your own ethic. He does not fear God, and he does not respect man. So he doesn't like man or God. If you don't fear man, if you don't fear God, you don't like man, You're a miserable human being. So Jesus has painted a miserable human being who's in control. Remind you of anyone? Move on. And there's a widow in the city. So he's painted the worst, once again, terrible judge, and the lowliest of low, a widow who's in that city. By the way, widows in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, God tells widows, I believe it's chapter 22, where he tells the Israelites, take care of your orphans and widows. God takes care of those who can't take care of themselves through his own people. Let me say that again. God takes care of those who can't take care of themselves through his own people. We are responsible for caring for other people. And that is directly related to God. He tells his people, take care of those who cannot take care of themselves. Women in those days didn't go get jobs. They didn't get law degrees. If their husband was dead and they didn't have a son to help them, they died shortly thereafter. If they didn't prostitute themselves to make money. God told his people, care for these who cannot care for themselves. They didn't do it. In fact, you see um, prophecies like in Isaiah chapter 1 and Jeremiah chapter 7 where the prophets are railing against the Israelites. You weren't caring for your widows and orphans. You weren't loving my people. And so we've got this horrible judge and a poor widow in that city, verse 3. There was a widow in that city. And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. Um, A widow was easily taken advantage of. In fact, it was pretty common in those days, apparently, where a woman, if she was widowed, where men, unjust men, would trump up charges and fees for these widows, knowing that they had no husband or son to care for them, take advantage of them, uh, create bills and debts that they needed to pay. And if they couldn't pay it, they would put a lien on their property and eventually take their property. This woman apparently is one of those people she's being taken advantage of, and she kept coming to him. Now, she's got two things that she can do. She can either bribe the judge and give him money under the table, because that's what judges do that are wicked, take bribes. What can you pay me? You pay me enough money, I'll take care of the guy or the men. But she doesn't have any money. She's a widow. That's her problem. The only other thing she has is to plead with him. Now, I heard some of you laughing during the Scripture reading. You should be ashamed of yourself. I have no idea what you were thinking when he said for a while he was unwilling, but she's wearing him out. I have no idea what you're talking. Why would you be laughing at that? That's the other thing she has. She can plead and bother him to death. She doesn't have the money to bribe, so she's going with option two. The word she kept coming to him means that she didn't do this at her day in court. She didn't just say, judge, please, please, please. She apparently waited till court was out and badgered him in front of his colleagues. Followed him to the marketplace, badgered him in the marketplace. Went to his house, knocked on his door. She kept coming and saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while, he was unwilling, verse 4. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, boom, right there. This is a man who's thinking he knows himself. He knows he doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to 
give to this woman because, and, and let someone think that he actually fears God or likes this woman. Some people that are this wicked, they really like that reputation. You've met a few maybe like that. They like that people know they don't believe in God and I don't like anybody, leave me alone. That's just kind of their, their mojo. Their, it's what they like. I want to be known as the, as the guy that hates everyone. So he's saying this to himself. I have no fear of God. I don't like man. I don't want anyone to think otherwise. Verse 5, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection. That means she was really bothering him. She's like a pebble in the shoe. You ever had one of those? Something that's, that's scratching up against you. You've got to do something about it. You ever get a haircut? And you just feel there's just those tiny hairs at the back, back here. And you just, oh, got it. Where are they? You pull your shirt off, you look, and they're just, they're just invisible little demons laughing at you, <laughs> poking you. You think you get them out of the neck, and all of a sudden one's on your undershirt. It's down here somewhere. It's just all day. What's wrong? You fat? No. There's a hair poking me here. It's bugging me. You'll do anything to get rid of it. And that's really what this woman has become. Because she bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Because the Greek text where it says wear me out means give a black eye to. How about that? That's what the Greek means. So if you're reading the Greek, you come across and he goes, otherwise she'll give me a black eye. What? It's a term used for boxing. What does he mean she'll give me a black eye? Well, have you ever seen someone with a black eye? What do you think about someone see with a black eye? Somebody. Cold-cocked you. You got knocked out. Somebody got the best of you. It's not always the case. Maybe he hurt them worse than the black eye he's got. But he's saying this metaphorically. He's saying, essentially, I have the power to help this woman. If she keeps coming to me and I don't give her what she needs, it's going to make me look bad. I'm going to have the black eye. She's going to destroy my reputation of being able to help people if I want to. She's bothering me. People are starting to wonder. Well, if she's always bothering you, Judge, why don't you just give her what she needs? Either you can't, or you won't, and if you won't, you're an idiot because she keeps bothering you. So he's thinking, well, gives me a black eye. The unrighteous judge says in verse 6, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay over them? I want you to note here, it's very important. What the woman wanted, what she needed, Jesus puts it in words. In verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about, what's that word? Justice? This woman wasn't pestering the judge because she had no food in her pantry. She wasn't pestering her judge because she, her husband was cancerous and she needed money to take him to Indy Anderson. She wasn't pestering the judge because she needed to redecorate her, her house. All the things we pray for, that's not what she was coming for. She was coming for justice. Someone is taking advantage of her. She needed help from this judge. And by begging him and pleading with him over and over and wearing him out, she got what she wanted. But it was justice. That's the point of the prayer. In fact, he says it again in verse, uh, not only in verse 7, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. It's justice. That very thing that I told you in the introduction that we are to be praying for in the interim following Christ's ascension into heaven and his promise to return and the time in which he does return. We live in a world that's twisted, unfair, People die. We, we saw the past couple of weeks, innocent people at a, at a party, a get-together in southern Israel. And they were pounced upon by malicious terrorists who want only one thing, to rid the world of all Jews. Well, 75 years ago, another fool tried to do that. Tried to eradicate the Jewish people. Unfair things happen all the time, don't they? 
Don't we live in a world where we're wondering, Lord, where's the justice? How can you let this happen? We apparently live in a day where the slave trade is still in existence. Aside from the fact that our country was filled with the sins of our slave trade prior to the Civil War, the filth and the foulness of that, how unfair for the people who were ripped from their country, stuck on a ship, treated like animals. That was unfair and wrong. Where's the justice there? Where's the justice in the unborn children inside a mother's womb being murdered by the millions? Where's the justice, Lord? And the slave trade I was getting to today are the people that are getting kidnapped. Women, children, even men, stolen, trafficked. The people in government, the conspiracies, what people want. We live in a day, folks, do we not? of horrors. The only reason we don't know about it is we've turned a blind eye. Our day is very corrupt. And we wonder. In fact, people shake their fist at God. Where are you, God? You could do something, but you haven't. What's the answer to that? God's answer is, oh, I will do something. I will fix this. Just not in your time. So what do we do in the interim? The woman gives us the example. We plead. We persist for justice. You ever read the Psalms? You come across a Psalm like Psalm 69. Lord, I'll just put it in my own English. Lord, get that person, hurt them real bad, cripple them and put them in a bed of fire ants. You ever read those Psalms? Those are in the Bible. Not the fire ant part, but let them die slow, painful deaths. Remember, I put that in my language. <laughs> the other day, I'm blowing off the driveway and got acorns everywhere, and my blower blows just sometimes it just decides to blow everything up in the air, and it, it came across an ant bed, and it blows in the air. Well, apparently, when you blow an ant bed, ants also blow and light down on your legs, and they, there's going to be justice for them. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> You see, in the interim, folks, we live in a day where there is no justice, and we wonder where God is. And God has put this parable on prayer here for us to encourage us. This is what we pray for, because justice, though it not is, pardon my grammar, it is coming. And when we pray for that which God has promised, we are guaranteed the answer to our prayers. When we pray for things that are not promised, there's frustration. Because we think, we use this and we say, that woman came over and over and over again. Lord, I'm just going to bother you. I'm going to bother you. I'm going to bother you. I'm going to bother everyone else I know to bother you about my prayer requests. Stop doing that. Don't give everyone your prayer requests. That, that's not somehow, that's not the way in which you, you twist God's arm to get what you want. This parable is about praying for God's justice. Because it will come. Note there, verse 6 again. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. He said this about the, the unrighteous steward back in chapter 16. Jesus has a way of painting the worst picture and the worst person and then telling us to learn a lesson from them. And the lesson from this unjust judge is that he is so wicked, hates God and hates man, and yet, because he was pleaded with, he gave good. He answered so we contrast God with this unrighteous, horrible judge, him over here, and God over here. If this guy will give, Jesus says, verse 7, now will not God, who we could put in parentheses, who is all-loving, omnipresent, all-benevolent, that's what all-loving means, I just repeated that, all-powerful, will not this loving God bring about justice? For his elect who cry out to him day and night? Obviously, the answer is yes. The woman is contra as the, the unrighteous judge is contrasted with the all loving God. This destitute widow is contrasted with the church of Jesus Christ. The elect. Folks, if you don't believe in election, you have a hard time coming across the word elect, the chosen ones, those predestined. And I understand it's difficult doctrine. 
just so happens to be in the Bible. It's something that perhaps it needs warming up to. But I'm a Bible teacher. I'm not here to say it doesn't mean what it means. But the elect here is the word that Jesus uses to speak of those whom God is listening to. We know from Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, that the elect are those whom God chose before the foundation of the world. That means before Genesis 1 was even spoken, before the the earth came into existence, before the universe came into existence, God knew his people, had a book called the Book of Life, wrote down our names. Wrote down our names. Before we were even born, before the earth was born, before the universe was born, God knew us. At the appointed time, God drew us to himself. According to John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me except the Father draw that person to me, Jesus says. And I will raise him up on the last day. None that the Father draws to me will I kick out, John six thirty-seven. John six sixty-five. only those whom God has enabled, those whom he drew, he enabled, will come to Jesus for faith, in faith. Acts 13, 48, all those Gentiles who believed that day. In fact, Luke tells us all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. There are those who are appointed, who are elect, who are predestined. You know you are among them if you believe in Jesus. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, you are among the elect. God knew you before the foundation of the world. Really? You're just going to sit there? Yeah, that's good. What did he say? I tuned out five minutes ago. God knew your name before you were ever born and saved you by his grace. You're not going to hear anything better than that. In spite of your wretchedness, of your wickedness and mine, in spite of what you've done since you've been saved, God hears the prayers. Not of, we are not poor, destitute widows who got what they wanted from wicked judges. We are God's loved ones for whom the blood of Christ was shed at the cross. He died for us. Folks, if He died for us, He will listen to us. He wants you to bother Him persistently for the justice that's coming. Our number one focus ought to be on the second coming of Christ. Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what it means to say and to pray, thy kingdom come. Send your kingdom, God. You're the king. Please come. Return to the earth. We long for that day. Oh, we long for other things too in the middle. But we want that first and foremost, and we are praying for that. And Lord, let there be justice for those who get on the phone and get widows on the phone who don't know any better and steal all their money like they did to my mom. My mom got taken for $10,000 recently. She calls me on one line and she's in tears. The man is on her computer. My mom has let this man on her computer because she's from a generation where you trust people who call you on the phone and tell you nice things. He has control of her computer. I said, unplug it. She said, I did. It's a laptop. Pull the battery off, mom. Smash it against the wall. The man is stealing every cent you owe, you you own. $10,000 later, out of my poor widow, mom. Now, I want justice. I don't want God to have it. I want it. You hurt my mama? You took what little money she's got? Do you want that, Justice? What about those children that are being slaughtered in the womb? What about those people that are being stolen? Stolen from and stolen altogether, their whole person. What about those people being held hostage and being tortured and brutalized in Israel right now? We want justice. God is not inept. God knows. He sees it all. And we pray, Lord... We know there's justice coming. Send it now. And note what Jesus says there at the end. Well, he says there, he's going to listen to his elect. Who are his elect? Those who cry to him day and night. Are are you crying to God day and night for justice? Or are you crying day and night for something that he's not told us to pray for, per se? It's for those who have a focus on Christ and they're, and they're thinking of him and they're praying to him day and night. And he says, will he delay? He won't delay long over them. Well, here's the bad news. 
<laughs> what is it? Second Peter chapter three, verses eight and nine. What's a day like to Lord to the Lord? Mm, thousand years. I've never lived a thousand years. Uh, thousand seconds is a long time. So a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So when he says he won't delay long over them, he's essentially saying here that God's not going to act immediately, but when he, when, he would, when he does act, it's swiftly. It's swiftly. And we see that when he returns in Revelation chapter 19. We're crying out to him day and night, and all the prayers that we lift up to God for his justice, when he returns, that's how he answers them. And everything we long for, everything we begged him for, according to his will, he grants. And then he asks in verse 8, I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The question is about, will you have grown weary praying for justice, not getting it in your timing? Will I? When Jesus does return, will he find us? Lord, I gave up. I gave up praying. I just didn't see any results, you know, in my short little lifespan. One little speck on this earth, I'm praying, and you're supposed to listen to me because I put my money in, Lord, and I pulled out. I didn't get at what I pulled out for, you know. I, you didn't do what I asked you to do. Where are you, Lord, when it hurts? When God returns, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith or will he find people who have packed it in because they didn't get what they wanted when they wanted it? I know what we want. I want what you want. The first point on your bulletin there is prayer admits God's ability and our inability. Anyone who prays has come to a point where they realize I can't do something. And if we acknowledge the God of all creation, we we recognize that he can, we can't, he can. For those of you who may be struggling with, say, the doctrine of election, I would ask you, do you pray for the lost? Your answer is going to be, well, yeah. And yet, you, you believe that only in their free will can they invite Jesus in, and yet you're asking God to foist his will upon them to bring them to you? No, that's contradictory. We pray that God's will be done, that everyone whom he has chosen will come to know Christ. They might even come to know Christ through our presentation of the gospel. How about that? Prayer admits God's ability and our inability. There are proper ways to pray. If you've ever read the story, the account in 1 Kings chapter 18, I'm going to turn over there now, 1 Kings 18, is the account of Elijah, um, the great prophet Elijah. There's this duel, duel between Elijah's God, who is Jehovah, Yahweh, our God, and the god Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal, the god of lightning, the god of thunder, a pagan god who does not exist. Well, the pagan god who does not exist, in Elijah's context, has 400 prophets and 450 prophetesses, or vice versa. They are ruling in Israel, worshiping false god. Elijah goes to a mountain. And he gathers together with the prophets. And he says, all right, look, here's the deal. We're going to set up an altar here. You call on your God, and he sends fire out of the sky, he's God. If I call on my God, and he sends fire out of the sky, then Yahweh is God. Okay, so they start daybreak. And they start dancing around. All these prophets of Baal must have been a scene. I mean, I'd have bought tickets for this one. And if you've ever been up on Mount Carmel, as we were recently back in February, I imagined it there. Uh, it's a beautiful sight, overlooks the plains of Megiddo. The last battle will be fought. It's beautiful. And they're up there dancing to their God of thunder, Baal. And Elijah's taking some sort of satisfaction in this because nothing's happening. There's this, the altar on the, on, on the ground, and there's nothing that's burned it up from the heavens yet. And that's where Baal lives because he's the God of thunder. And when nothing happens, Elijah says, oh, maybe you need to speak louder. Maybe he's deep in thought or on vacation. I'm not even making this up. Sometimes the Bible's funny, isn't it? So they decide that, hey, Elijah's right. So they get louder. Hey, Baal, Baal. And they're dancing around and then they take to cutting themselves, running a blade across their skin and letting blood pour out so that the God of thunder will say, ah, now they're bleeding. I'll give them what they want. 
But nothing happens because there is no Baal. So Elijah sets up the altar, pours water all over it to make it even more difficult, calls down fire from heaven to the God who does exist. And all the gods, or I should say all the prophets of that God, are slain that day. You see, folks, sadly, that's the way some Christians pray. Like pagans. Screaming, cutting, persistently begging God to give them what they want. Not praying according to God's will, praying according to their will. Putting themselves on church prayer lists. Repeating a prayer over and over and over. If you're in the Roman Catholic Church, you say a bunch of uh, Our Fathers and Hail Marys. This is exactly what Jesus says not to do. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5, 6, 7, 8. And use not vain repetitions as the heathen does. God knows what we need before we ask Him. And yet here we are, begging and pleading with God, thinking that if we keep talking, He'll finally give it to us. When we seek the proper prayers, when we seek God's kingdom and God's will. And how do you know what God's will is? You read the Bible. You read the Bible. You know, recently I've been accused and, and uh, implied that I am an, a, a Bibleologer, that I worship the Bible. That's come to my attention recently. That we at this Bible church worship the Bible. As if that this book is somehow our worship guide. This book gives us the words of God. Does it not? Scripture God exalts. He says, Jesus even prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Keep them in thy truth, Lord. Thy word is truth. When we look at the word of God, the word of God is where we find who God is. We know who God is. We know His will and we're able to worship Him in accordance with truth. No one bows down to read a book with print on it, but this is a special book because there's one God and God gave this to us. You will know God's will by knowing God's Word. Don't go seeking a dream when God has given you His Word. Proper prayer is seeking the things God seeks. Improper prayer is about repetition, coercive tactics. Give me. I mean, you know, in the day when there was vending machines, you put, well, back in my day, back in my day, I sound like an old man, don't I? Back in my day, it was 50 cents. You put 50 cents into a vending machine, you push a button, or you you, remember the old manual ones, pull it out. You shake on the machine, you know, and you get, you get it, it comes out. You put what you want in, it comes out. That's what people think prayer is. I put in what I wanted, and by golly, I ought to get what I, what I want in return. And if I don't, I'm shaking that machine, and I'm going to get with the owner of this machine, and I'm going to tell them I'm never buying anything from your vending machine again. It's the way we treat God. It's the right way to pray, and there's a wrong way to pray. God's people persist in prayer, as I've said over and over today, for justice for God's justice, for God's will. This contrasts the unrighteous God or the the unrighteous judge with the righteous God. As I said, that wicked judge is contrasted. He gave what, what the woman wanted, and yet will not our loving God give to his elect? Not because we beg and plead with him. God is not in heaven listening to us going, all right, fine. You've been praying for two full weeks or you did a 40-day fast You seem awfully hungry. I guess I'll give it to you so you'll go eat because you'll be praying for your health to be restored if I don't give you it now. Or people will say things like, Lord, I just just one more request and I won't ever ask anything again. That is not our God. You keep asking God. He's never tired of our request, ever. You don't have to say just one more. He finally says, all right, fine. Of the eight and a half billion people on the planet, I finally got one less person begging me for something. God is not like you and me. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? God is not like us. Don't put your personality in and think, okay, Lord, I'd feel this way. You must feel this way. Not even close. We also know that vengeance belongs to God. Romans 12, 9 quotes uh, from Deuteronomy where God says, do not take vengeance in your own hand. Vengeance belongs to me. In fact, if you're trying to get even with someone, because they hurt you and did you wrong, you are stealing from God. It is not your prerogative. It is not our prerogative to go get even with anyone. 
vengeance, God is saying, belongs to me. I will repay. When we seek it and we say, ah, oh, God understands, I'm going to get that person. No, he doesn't. All he knows is that you are stealing from him. That is his glory and his justice. It is his vengeance. Let him do what God does. Believers in relationship with God are strengthened through prayer. Even when we don't get what we want. Prayer is a mysterious thing, isn't it? I mean, I've struggled with prayer all of my life since I was a child in my, my days in seminary. And I've been a pastor here for 23 years. I continue to struggle with prayer. I don't understand that it. it's a mystery. We, I've come to learn that God says yes, no, maybe so, slow, wait. Most of the time it's just no, isn't it? If you want a prayer request answered, get your four-year-old to pray it. God usually answers them. And why? Because, you know, even if it's a joke, God will introduce himself to a four-year-old by answering that four-year-old's prayer. And God will grow a 40-year-old by making them wait long periods of time for their prayer. I wrote down a bunch of notes on this. I just wanted to get them out. God's delay in answering prayers builds our relationship with him. It builds our relationship with him. We have to rely upon him. But folks, if you have a timetable for God to act, you will be disappointed. God will intentionally not meet your timetable. Had a woman came here years ago. She had a Muslim for a husband. She was a sweet lady. Still is, I'm sure. Um, and we prayed for her husband, prayed for her. She was a blessing. Her kids came here. And one day she said, I'm done. She really did. She said, I'm done. I'm leaving. God has not given me what I asked for. I thought she was kidding. I mean, she just left. I had to ask where she was, and I called her. And uh, no, she said, I, I just can't. You know, my, my, my husband won't, won't believe, and I just, I just don't believe in God anymore. What, what? What? Maybe he's not supposed to believe. Maybe you shouldn't have married an unbeliever in the first place. How about that? Aren't we supposed to be equally yoked when we marry? Young ladies, young men, don't marry someone. I don't care how beautiful they are and how much you love them, but if they are not believers in Christ, solid followers of Jesus Christ, they are not for you. You will live to regret it. You will be in my office. The fact that I'm saying it now means you probably choose somebody else because you don't want me to say I told you so. God's delay in answering builds our relationship with him. We talk to him. We get to talk to him. And you discover this. You discover this truth. Is that prayer is not the means through which we change God. But it is the avenue through which he transforms us. That's quotable, isn't it? Prayer is not the means by which we change God. Prayer is the avenue through which he transforms us. So when you get in prayer, put yourself before him and say, Lord, here's what I want, but change me. I'm not going to try to bend your arm to the point where you say, Uncle, okay, I'll give you what you want. It is the avenue through which God transforms us. Persistence in prayer shows what we truly think of God. You remain persistent you are saying, God, if I'm praying for the right things, I'm praying for your will, for your justice, send it. We don't know that God has saved our children. We don't know. When God chose beforehand, before, he would, before the foundation of the world, who would be saved? Praying for someone over and over every day just stresses us out. Praying for someone who's got cancer, people get cancer. Very few people who have cancer, stage four cancer, live through it. And all of them, even if they get through it, all of them, I'm making a prophecy here, will die. A good friend of mine, I went to high school with him, actually went to junior high, and high school with him. He was kind of a partier in high school. He was really nice. We laughed a lot. We worked together at a, at a restaurant, but uh, we hung in different circles. He was, he was a bit of a, a boozer. And uh, um, always in a good mood and always moving around. And, and he came to Christ late in life, and he wrote a book. And then he died. Uh, but the book that he wrote informed me of things I did not know when we were in high school, and that was that his mother died of cancer. His mother, he was a charismatic. They grew up in a charismatic church. In the charismatic church, you're told if somebody has cancer, you pray for them. If you have the right amount of faith, they'll be healed. Keep praying. And if they're not being healed, you don't have enough faith. He and his family prayed, and they prayed, and they were, no doubt they had enough faith. We all know that God can heal. We just don't know that he will. But they believed in their bad theology that God was going to. 
And even in the mom's darkest days, in her last days, and on her last day, when she was withering away, being eaten up with this cancer, they were still praying and believing that God would save her, would make her well. Well, she died. And you can imagine what he did with his faith after that. That's when he went a little crazy. I didn't know why, but that's what he was doing. And then my friend got cancer himself, and he died shortly thereafter. After he'd written his book, after he had actually come to Christ. It's a beautiful thing. In fact, I talked to him. He said, uh, um, I said, I want you to come tell your testimony in my church. He goes, I'll do it, but I can't promise I won't curse. I said, I'll make you a deal. You won't curse, I'll let you come talk in my church. <laughs> he died the next week. Um, but his testimony is that if you believe that God will give you anything you ask, if you have enough faith, folks, you are no better than the prophets of Baal dancing, acting a fool, thinking that if you give God what you think God wants, he will give you what you want. And such a person who lives through that kind of cancer would be a miraculous story. People do live. And we pray and God does restore some. And you know what? They die later. Just delays the inevitable. Let's just assume that maybe she was prayed out of her state because that's what works. She becomes a poster woman for for what great prayer does. Well, let's just keep praying for her. Theoretically, she could never die if that were true. The next generation would just keep praying for her. She might have to say one day, look, folks, quit praying. I need to die. That is not what we pray for. God, in the midst of my mother dying of cancer, let your glory be seen. Let let it be seen through this dying woman. Let it be seen through her family who are gut-wrenchingly sad. May your glory be seen. That's what you pray for. God, since I'm going to be up at MD Anderson for the next six months or whatever, doing whatever treatments, let Christ go with me into that hospital and let your light be shown in that dark place. That's what you pray for. Doesn't mean you can't pray, Lord, and heal me. God knows what you're thinking. Pray for what you're thinking. He already knows it. But you persist in prayer in dark times like that? And you persist throughout it, even at the end of that, when it ends in death for someone you loved, you show what you think about God. Well, when Christ returns, will he find faith? Will he find faithfulness or waywardness? Thankfully, my friend Keith came to know Christ at the end of it. God put People in his life. One of them was Walter Payton, of all people. How about that? You young guys, maybe you don't know Walter Payton. He's only the second greatest running back ever, too. Of course, Emmett Smith. But uh... <laughs> As you know, and as I've said, there are social justices everywhere. It's kind of the buzz phrase today, social justice, social injustice. But it's coming. Paying the descendants of slaves today $5 million as they want in California is not the reparations God is bringing. It is not our prerogative to make reparations for what people have done before us. It is God's job, His task, and it is to His glory. We pray for it. What's happened in our country, what happens in our backyard... God, that's unfair. It's not right. Make it right. The answer from heaven is, I will be persistent in praying for that. I will be persistent in praying for that. So a couple of issues about prayer. Number one, they can be wrong. They're not beneficial for us or others. It's just the wrong prayer. Prayed the wrong way for the wrong reasons. That happens. We grow. Prayers might, number two, might need time to mature over time. I can't wait. I'm going to have to wait, but I'm looking forward to, to seeing all the prayers for people and things that I've lifted up that seemingly got a, an, just got ignoring it or saying no, that on the other side, we see how powerful those prayers actually were. I don't want to be embarrassed and say, oh, and I was cursing you, God, for not giving me. Thank you for not giving me that. Thank you for not granting it. I see now what you're doing. We don't see anything. All we see is a selfishness in our prayers. Let God be God. Take his nose. Take his nose. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night before he died? The Lord God Almighty having taken flesh, 
is in the garden on Thursday night before his death on the cross. And he prays three times, three times, Father, if it be thy will, remove this cup, this cup of wrath from me. Three times. Apparently the answer each time was no, no, no. There is no other way. You are the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You must die. Jesus accepted that just three times. The great apostle Paul had a tormentor from Satan, a thorn in the flesh. He prayed to God, how many times, class? Three times. Remove this thorn from me. The answer was no, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Three times. It's not about getting on a prayer list. It's not putting it on Facebook. It's not getting out there for everyone in the world to know about it. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Have enough faith to be that righteous man or woman that offers up the prayer. You want other people to be a part of the blessing? Ask them to pray with you. You need comfort along the way? Ask people to pray with you. But people get sick, don't they? And they're going to continue to get sick. I think some folks just think that God is like this pharmacist in heaven. Lord, here's the deal. We got this, this, and this. We got six people we need to pray. Everyone over the planet. Here's these. Okay, okay. What's God doing? Oh, gosh. I need to go get some new drugs. I need to, uh, I just don't have enough time. Even though I'm eternal, I just don't have enough time to do all this. People get sick. God did not give us sick people so that we could just pray for them to be healed. That is immature prayer improper prayer that's not what the parable is telling us persistence in asking and seeking and demanding even the justice of God prayers require waiting and they require they bring about this dependence upon God that God wants us to have on him so let me ask you a few questions I've got it on your your bulletin and I want you to hopefully you'll discuss it in your shepherding groups or just go home and, and, and pray about it but Number one, repeating prayers. I'm asking the question, are you repeating your prayers hoping the quality of your prayer is measured by the quantity of your words? Oh, Lord. Oh, thy precious Father. That doesn't do anything. It's just you being dramatic. Putting together words. God knows what's on our heart. The words don't mean The slick words and the new words and praying in tongues, people think praying in tongues, that is not how you get God's attention. We pray for his will in the name of Christ under the power of the Spirit of God. God doesn't call us to badger him, but to pray for his will. Meaningless repetition is for pagans, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And always remember how Jesus and Paul, both on three occasions, they got their no, they took their no. And they went on about their lives. I asked the next question. Believing that God is ignorant to the needs around you? And he somehow needs us to tell him? Lord, okay, here's the deal. We need to tell you a few things. We need to tell you about this person sick over here. We need to tell you about these missionaries over here. We need to tell you about this church over here. Uh, is God taking notes from our prayers? We don't need to inform God. And what little you and I know, God knows a plethora more. Let us be careful. God knows what we need even before we ask. He knows what we want before we ask. Number three, do you think that God is unconcerned for some and needing us to awaken him to action? Lord, what's the deal? Why won't you heal this person? I have done that. As a pastor, I deal with difficult marriages. They come into my office and and I think, okay, I don't make money on counseling, so it doesn't benefit me. Um, I'm not getting any, any fame or fortune from counseling. All I want is for these people to come back together, Lord. That's all I want. My, my motive is pure. This person loves the Lord. This person loves the Lord. They've got some problems. Lord, just bring them together in Jesus' name. It doesn't happen. And I've seen some break up, and they go apart, and it's just even worse. And I think, really, Lord? I didn't have anything to gain. I know my prayers weren't selfish. I'm a man of God. I love you. I want your will. It's your will that they be together. Apparently not. Thinking that God is unconcerned and trying to bring him to action, your will be done, Lord. 
Your will be done. And my, Lord, my prayer on top of that is that you allow me to accept what your will is. They're injustices. People get ripped off. People get hurt. Lord, in your time, your way. Are we striving to make God compassionate by our continual prayers? Lord, you need to be concerned about this. Kind of the way I was with this family. Lord, you need to be concerned. These people need to come together. It's for your glory and for your, your complete honor that they come together. You need to, Lord. Did you hear me? I'm on my knees here. I'm fasting. I've had them come together. Leaped for joy. One day I leaped for joy. It was February, cold February. And this family I've been working with for so long. I mean, I hadn't slept in months. Just difficult, difficult. Came together with a phone call. I jumped up and down. I ran down to the rec center in Fairfield. I got a good workout in. A couple days later, it was over again. And he committed suicide shortly thereafter. Really, God? And the answer from heaven is, really, Lance? Do you trust me? And finally, are we repeating requests so as to move God by our attempts at zeal and devotion? Ignoring that thin veil of hypocrisy that's in our own lives? Folks, the persistent prayer follows on the heels of Jesus saying, I'm going to send my kingdom. It's coming. What are you going to do in the interim? Pray for all the little things you want, that you think God demands, needs, wants you to have, or will you pray for his will? His will is justice, except for the people that he has given grace to. His will is not justice for me, or you who are in Christ, his will is grace. Praise his holy name for that. Because if he was fully just, all of us would receive his wrath. But in his grace... God has exempted some of us from his justice. Folks, if you are not in Christ, don't pray for justice. Because you're part of that justice that he will mete out when he comes back. If you do not know who and what salvation is, let me give it to you in 30 seconds. You are a sinner. Until you know the bad news, the good news will mean nothing. You are a sinner. You will die, and when you die in your body, your soul, your being will be transferred into eternal darkness, a lake of fire. I think it's a lake of fire. You know why I think that? The Bible calls it the lake of fire. I was watching Terminator 2 the other day. You know where the Terminator goes in? What does he go into at the end? A lake of fire. He goes in with his thumb up. No one's going in with their thumbs up. They're going in to burn eternally. That's the bad news. The good news is, in spite of who you are, what you've done, if you will believe in, receive, and trust in Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he is God in the flesh, if you will trust in him, all of your sins are forgiven. Everything you've done, everything you will do, washed away. That's why he came to die on that cross. He died our death. If the wages of sin is death, Jesus died our death. How do I get that, Lance? Believe in the name of Jesus. Confess with your tongue this thing right here. Jesus is Lord. But don't just say it. You must also believe in your heart what you say, that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. And you pray for the justice of God to come upon the enemies of God, resting peacefully knowing that God has forgiven and saved you. And until he returns, may he find us faithful in prayer, more faithful tomorrow than we are today because we know he is God and we are not. Let's pray. Lord, for your justice, we pray. I pray, Lord, that many who are under your wrath, don't know Christ, have not been saved, do not have their sins forgiven. 
I pray that they would, especially those who hear this gospel presentation. May they be saved by trusting in Jesus. But God, send your, send your wrath in your time and your way. May you find us faithful when you arrive. Whether we are raptured or we are here when you arrive at the second coming, may you find us faithful today, tomorrow, and every day we draw breath. All to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now go, my friends, and be persistent in your prayer for God's justice. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 